0: PodCastle, episode number 74, for October 13th, 2009. The Fireman's Ferry, by Sandra MacDonald.
1: Hi, I'm M.K. Hobson. Today's tale is The Fireman's Ferry, by Sandra MacDonald. This delightful story got me to thinking about the animal most people associate with a firehouse mascot, the Dalmatian dog, and how these lovely spotted canines had come to occupy their place of pride in firehouses all over the world. Doing a little research, I discovered it all went back to the Dalmatian's original role as a coach dog in England in the 18th and early 19th centuries. They were bred to run alongside horse-drawn stagecoaches and ward-off highwaymen. They also displayed a unique ability to bond with horses that allowed them to work effectively with the big-spirited animals and act as a dependable, calming presence in strange stables across the countryside. Given their history, it was a pretty natural leap to the fire service, which, in the old days, differed from a stagecoach trip only in the cargo transported, the distance covered, and the hazard of the destination. The fire service even had its own highwaymen of a sort. In the early days, fire companies were privately operated, and there was often stiff competition to fight fires. The company that made it to the scene, hooked up to the hydrant, and completed the task was the company that got paid. As a result, the firefighters and their dogs were sometimes called upon not only to battle the blaze, but to fight off other companies if two different squads got to the fire at the same time. And even if they were lucky enough to get there first, they might still have to protect their equipment from disgruntled latecomers. And let's not forget the horses. Fire horses were by no means broken down nags. They were fast, hard-working animals and could present a tempting target for horse thieves. The Dalmatians, with their strong affection for their equine co-workers, could be counted on to put paid to that kind of skullduggery. The Firehouse Fairy originally appeared in Realms of Fantasy. Sandra McDonald's other stories have appeared in Asimov's, Strange Horizons, Fantasy, Tailbones, and many other great publications. According to her website, she has been to Guam, Newfoundland, and Key West as a commissioned officer with the U.S. Navy, and has been paid to be a Hollywood assistant, software instructor, bureaucrat, and college professor. The story is read by David O. Engelstad. David is a writer with a day job living in Madison, Wisconsin. He is currently finishing work on his latest novel, A Fantasy. This is his first reading for PodCastle, so everyone get on the message boards and give him a good, solid what-ho. Enjoy the story!
2: The Fireman's Ferry, by Sandra MacDonald. Graduation day, bright and sunny. The breeze smelled like freshly cut grass. One hundred newly-minted firefighters waited anxiously to receive their diplomas from a magnificent golden phoenix. Stephen Goodwin shifted his weight from one foot to the other and tried not to stare at the bird's huge wings. The supreme mascot of the Massasoit Fire Department was rarely seen, never photographed, and undeniably amazing. She sat serenely at the edge of the graduation stage with Stephen's first station assignment clutched in her claws. And so, on this fine day, Assistant Chief Kelly droned on at the podium. Kelly was a short man with steel gray hair and a paunch that strained his uniform buttons. He'd been speaking for several minutes, but Stephen was only half-listening. Mostly he was thinking about tough-as-nails engine 157, with its east-side firehouse and fierce dragon mascot. Nobody messed with 157. Or ladder 28 on Rymere Island, with a steel-corseted Valkyrie riding beside the driver. Valkyries kicked ass. Kelly continued, "'Their courage and strength will be tested in the field under extraordinary circumstances.' "'Beside Stephen, Jimmy Linden let out an audible sigh. "'We'll be retired before he's finished.' "'The two of them had grown up together on the same block, "'had joined the Army together, "'had served in Iraq within twenty miles of each other's units. "'For the last thirteen weeks they'd been practicing ladder ascensions, "'rescue training, fire suppression, and emergency medicine. Stephen had aced all the physical requirements. "'Jimmy received the best scores on the written tests, "'but none of that meant anything until your first big fire, Stephen knew.' Until you'd face down an inferno and live to tell about it. "'And so they'll continue in the tradition of brotherhood.' Stephen shifted his gaze to the audience. His current girlfriend was somewhere in the folding chairs, lost in a sea of blouses and shirts. Stephen's father sat right in front, ramrod straight with the other retired firefighters. Flanking the seats was a line of antique fire engines with gleaming brass and red paint. A dozen more modern engines also waited, their crews ready to dash off if needed.' Stephen could see a three-headed dog wagging its tail eagerly on one truck and a water nymph filing her fingernails while she leaned against a paramedic unit. I present to you the Academy's 150th class of brave, skilled, hard-working, probationary firefighters, Chief Kelly finally said. Stephen barely heard the applause and cheers when his turn came to cross the stage. His hand was clammy as he shook hands with his teachers, the school administrators, and Chief Kelly. He knew he was blushing and grinning like a fool. Some days back in the desert he'd figured to be dead by dusk. Now he was a fireman, like his dad, and both his grandfathers, and all the other Goodwin men whose pictures hung in the fire museum gallery. At the far end of the stage the phoenix peered down at him with wide, black eyes. He could see himself in those eyes, twin reflections of his black and gold uniform. She lifted her whitish-gray beak and passed a scroll off to Chief Kelly, who pressed it into Stephen's hand. "'Good luck, son,' Kelly said. Stephen waited until he was off the stage before he unrolled his assignment. "'Oh, shit!' "'Engine Company 14's firehouse was a two-story brick building "'nestled in a residential neighborhood by the river. "'The streets were narrow and crowded, "'lined with wooden triple-decker apartment buildings. "'The smell of sewage carried on the breeze from a nearby treatment plant. "'The station had its own parking lot surrounded by a chain-link fence.' On his first morning of work, Stephen wedged his battered Honda into an available space, killed the engine, and sat for a long moment with his hands on the steering wheel. Finally, he hauled himself out of the car and walked into the open equipment bay. The fire engine was an old Firestorm II, dazzlingly red and silver. The watch office was empty, but sounds of conversation drifted out of the adjacent day room. Captain Ingalls, a large black man with a scarred cheek and short gray hair, was sitting in his office listening to radio traffic and watching a coffee pot percolate. Stephen knocked on the door. Captain? Proby Ingalls boomed. Come on in. He went in, but didn't sit. The office was only large enough for an old steel desk, two wooden filing cabinets, a leather seat for the captain and some folding chairs for visitors. Official notices and regulations hung on the bulletin boards. Sir, I wanted to say that I'm glad... "'Hold on,' Engels said, raising his hand. "'Both of them watched the last bits of coffee drop into a glass pot. "'Engels transferred the liquid to a mug ringed with multiple layers of brown grime. Stephen said, "'Looks like that cup needs to be washed, Captain.' "'Haven't washed it in twelve years,' Engels said. "'I like the grit.' "'He took a happy sip, fixed his gaze on Stephen, and said, "'I heard you weren't happy with this assignment.' "'I'm fine with it, sir,' Stephen said. "'My father was a little concerned.' "'Your father called Chief Kelly. "'They go way back.' "'I asked him not to, which was true, "'but he hadn't asked very hard. "'The superintendent told him "'what I'm going to tell you, Proby. "'You deal with it. "'Every mascot in the fire department "'is a highly skilled, highly prized "'supernatural volunteer. "'The city works long and hard to recruit them, "'and we're damned lucky to have one. "'You understand? "'Sir,' Stephen squared his shoulders "'just like back in the military, "'there's no problem.' Ingalls called over Scooter Watkins, the engineer, and second-in-command on B-shift. He was a heavy man with a wide mustache and an easy grin. Iraq, huh? He asked after introductions. People shoot at you a lot over there? Some, Stephen allowed. Ingalls reached for his appalling coffee mug. Show him around, Scoot. Bob's dying to meet him. The equipment bay floor was spotlessly clean. The upstairs shower leaked, but the tiles had recently been grouted. The beds in the men's bunk room were made up with green blankets and tight corners. In the basement were some free weights, a dusty treadmill, and a sofa with tattered cushions. Final stop on the tour was the day room, with its kitchen area and large wooden table. Worn leather sofas lined the walls, and two large windows overlooked the river. Pictures of fallen firemen hung on the walls in sturdy frames. The station's mascot flitted through the air and asked in a high-pitched voice, "Is this him, our new probie? I'm delighted to meet you. Ecstatic! We're going to be such good friends. Would you like to stroke my wings? They're finer than silk." Tinker Bob, official fairy of Company Fourteen, calm down, Bob. Scooter said, "Let the kids sit down for a moment." Bob danced and twirled and threw little bits of glitter into the air. He was no more than three inches tall and had rainbow-colored wings. His legs were encased in pink tights and glittery ballet slippers. His curly brown hair looked silky soft, and his little cap had bells on it. "'You're very handsome,' Bob said as he zipped around Stephen's head. "'I have a thing for men in uniform, handsome firefighters all around me, but don't forget the ladies, too. Miss Paula is exceptionally beautiful!' "'Bob, sit!' Paula Little said from her place at the kitchen table she was the third member of b shift stephen knew her only by reputation a few years earlier during her first week on the job she and two other firefighters had been knocking down a fire in a burning brownstone an air conditioning unit dropped through the roof and smashed the floor out from underneath them the other two guys died paula had spent 3 months in a physical rehab before coming back to the job her left cheek and lower jaw were still scarred from burns stephen pretended not to notice Hope you like our little fellow, Scooter said, with a head jerk toward Bob. We're mighty fond of him out here. Bob darted in and kissed Stephen's cheek. We're going to be best friends! The kiss felt like the bite of a fly. Stephen said, I'm sure we will. He hadn't survived the Army by being stupid, after all. If the members of B-Shift didn't give him positive recommendations at the end of his probation, he'd never make it to full-fledged firefighter. As lowest in the pecking order, he'd have to do most of the grunt work around the station— cooking, cleaning, swabbing down the bathrooms, folding and refolding hoses, polishing boots. It was going to be hard enough to prove himself without alienating them over a tiny fairy mascot.
1: "'Best friends! Best friends! Best friends!'
2: Bob sang. He cartwheeled in midair and then came to rest on Stephen's forearm.
1: "'My dearest, will you fix me a
2: bath, warm water, some honey, and a bit of vanilla oil in a teacup?' "'Just be sure it's not too hot. "'I have very delicate skin, you know.' Stephen was tempted to pour dishwashing liquid into the mix, "'but he held back. "'Give the little guy a chance,' he told himself. "'He was looking for the vanilla oil "'when the dispatch tones went off "'and the intercom clicked to life. "'Engine 14, report of smoke, 124 Dorello Street.' "'Report of smoke?' "'Bob zoomed into the equipment bay. "'Let's go get him!' "'The shift wasn't even thirty minutes old.' Stephen had expected just a little more time to get settled. Paula said, "'Here, Proby,' and thrust a heavy turnout coat into his hands. She pulled on her own coat and swung up to the jump seat behind Captain Engels. "'You sit over there!' He climbed up behind Scooter and tugged his coat on as the engine rolled forward. The wail of the siren caught him off guard, though he'd never been surprised during academy training. A real call, his first real call. He could sense the curious and envious glares of motorists as Scooter maneuvered the engine through traffic. "'Men on their way to office buildings. "'Men on their way to crummy jobs. "'Not him. Never him. Four minutes after leaving the firehouse, "'they reached a boarded-up grammar school "'of crumbling brick and broken windows. "'It might have been a grand building once, "'but graffiti marred most of its walls, "'and the playground of rusting equipment "'was littered with drug debris, excrement, "'and mounds of trash. "'A police car was parked on the sidewalk. "'Homeless, get in there. "'Try to cook up junk or their dinner,' the cop said. "'Going to burn the whole place down one day.' Stephen couldn't smell smoke. The air was visibly clear, or as clear as city air could be. But he followed Paula dutifully across the playground to a side door that hung loose on its hinges. They inspected inside, finding no people but plenty of evidence of squatters, soiled sheets, candle stubs, a tattered brown teddy bear. The classrooms were ghostly in the boarded-up light. The blackboards had all been shattered or covered with graffiti. Nothing here, Paula reported over the radio she gave Stephen a bright-eyed look. little disappointing, huh? He shrugged. The rest of the day was no more exciting. In fact, Stephen's whole first week unfolded that way. Milk runs and cakewalks. A few car accidents, some building inspections, a diabetic who'd collapsed in a Chinese supermarket. Jimmy, who'd been posted to Engine 129, at least got some action on a fire in an Italian restaurant. Whole kitchen went up, he said over the phone. All that grease, you know? They meant to shoot pool at a private bar called The Hose. The floors were old and scuffed, the booths made of ripped red vinyl, but the pool tables were in good condition, and the stools at the bar were sturdy enough to hold the stoutest firefighters. Pictures of equipment and mascots hung on the nicotine-stained walls. The city had recently outlawed indoor smoking in restaurants and bars, but The Hose was owned by a retired battalion chief, and Jimmy was puffing on a noxious-smelling cigar. Can you believe it? Jimmy said as he lined up the cue ball Six medical assists Two car accidents And a woman too fat to get out of her front door That was the entire shift yesterday But it's better than getting shot at in Baghdad Stephen swallowed some beer I guess Jimmy gave him a mischievous look Still, at least we've got a dwarf Shut up Mogul doesn't say much Good at ripping car doors off with his bare hands Rest of the time he sits around cursing And hammering silver Bob spent most of his time gossiping, reading celebrity magazines over Paula's shoulder, and playing dress-up with a bunch of other fairies that lived in a nearby oak tree. Bob spent most of his time gossiping, reading celebrity magazines over Paula's shoulder, and playing dress-up with a bunch of other fairies that lived in a nearby oak tree. The ferrymen enjoyed draping themselves in colored tinfoil or scraps of pink velvet, or the little tiny firefighter costumes the district chief's wife had made for them. Sometimes they pretended to fight fires in the station locker room. Scooter would issue them mint floss to use as a fire hose. Captain Ingalls would reward them with candy corn for a job well done. "'Thank you, sir,' the ferryman would salute. The absolutely worst thing about Bob was his whistling. Cheerful little whistles, day and night. In the kitchen, in bunk room, and equipment bay. Except when Captain Ingalls asked him to pipe down. "'Station 42 had a goblin infamous for its body ballads, "'and Ladder 12's Minotaur had written a country music hit, "'but Bob simply whistled and whistled and whistled. "'Why don't you think up some songs instead?' "'Paula asked one night while Stephen dried the dinner dishes. "'With a melody and lyrics.' "'Bob draped himself over the back of a sofa. "'I'm not good at lyrics. It's my one tragic failing.' Stephen said, "'I'm sure you have others.' Paula gave him a narrow look. "'My dearest Stephen,' Bob said and darted in for a quick kiss on the cheek. "'Will you pour me some almond milk with cinnamon on top?' A month after Stephen joined Engine 14, the shift got their first three-tone. It was 2 a.m., and he'd been dreaming of being lost in the sand under a hot yellow sky. Over the intercom, the dispatcher said, "'Engine 14, Ladder 2, Rescue 8, 145 Lasco Street.' Stephen was up out of bed before the announcement finished and stumbled to the engine with a dry mouth. You ready for this? Paula asked as the engine raced through the dark streets. Born ready, Stephen shouted back and caught the smell of smoke in the air. Two minutes after leaving the firehouse they screeched to a halt outside a burning Victorian house. They were the first unit on the scene. Thick grey smoke boiled toward the full moon. Red flames shot out of blown out windows on the second floor, melting the aluminum siding. Neighbors in pajamas and bathrobes had come out to watch the spectacle. Some took pictures with their cell phones, while others smoked or chatted. Three kids and a man stood at the curb in obvious distress. "My wife!" the man yelled to the firefighters. "I think she's still inside!" Captain Ingalls turned to Bob. "Go find her!" "Yes, sir!" Bob let out a smart salute and zipped toward the inferno. Stephen supposed the little guy was brave enough, "'plunging into a burning building like that. "'His own bravado was turning into wobbly knees. "'Fire training at the academy had been under intimidating "'but controlled circumstances. "'The chances of getting injured or killed had been real, but minimized. "'Here the hot air was roiling with ash, "'and the roof might collapse at any moment, "'and Paula was yelling at him to follow her up onto the porch, "'hold the line, keep it aimed!' "'He had his mask on, the heavy rubber and plastic feeding him clean air.' But the acrid smells of burning carpet and paint made his nose and throat itch. Heat rolling out of the house baked through his turnout coat and gloves. The most vivid thing about Iraq hadn't been the filth or the desperation or even the deaths. Instead it was the relentless summer heat baking through his uniform and frying him from the inside out. Bob darted out of the smoke and passed Stephen's helmet. He flew directly to the curb to report back to Captain Ingalls. No signal or order came to rescue the trapped woman already dead, then. Paula tugged Stephen toward the front door. They crouched low and shot pulses of cold water at the ceiling in the front room. Drenching fires directly was ineffective, old-fashioned. Better that the heat convert the water to cooling mist. It was still hot as hell, but not so bad that Stephen couldn't think or act. Soon Ladder Two and Rescue Eight arrived, and their combined efforts knocked the fire out. Stephen felt thrilled and exhilarated at surviving his first fire, then went outside and saw the children. "'weeping for their mother. "'How'd you do, Proby?' asked one of the men from Rescue 8 "'while Stephen and Paula folded up their hose. "'Bob made a quick dizzying circle around Stephen's head. "'He did excellent! Very brave! Very manly! "'But I singed my tights. See? They're all dirty!' "'Ladder two's mascot, a Greek sphinx with the head of a woman "'and ink wings of an eagle, stretched out her leonine body "'and eyed Bob as if he'd make a tasty snack.' The man from Rescue 8 said to Bob, You want a good hosing down? Come on over, we'll get you cleaned up. Bob's fine, Paula said firmly. Go see Scooter, Bob. That night, while Stephen finished the proby job of making sure everything was clean before it was stowed away, he thought more about Paula. Through all his weeks of academy training, he hadn't been sure about women in the department. Sure, they could pass the written tests. They'd done okay with the physical training. But then there was the real world. Plunging into a fire with 70 or 80 pounds of gear on your back, dragging lines filled with hundreds of pounds of water. Paula had done well, but could she carry Stephen out if he got injured in a fire? How about carrying Scooter, or even Captain Engels? Stephen's father, the retired fire lieutenant, didn't think she could do it. Upper body strength is one of the areas where men will always be better than women, Tom Goodwin said as he and Stephen watched a preseason football game. She lifting weights? "'Every day, down in the basement,' Stephen said. Tom reached for more popcorn. "'Never going to be the same.' Stephen's newest girlfriend, Katie, was less interested in Paula's physical prowess and more interested in where she slept, where she showered, if she walked around the station in her underwear. "'Yeah,' Stephen said, pinching her hip. They were lying in bed with the lights of the city reflecting on the ceiling. "'We all do. The captain wears a thong, and Scooter has boxes that say firemen do it with big hoses.' Katie tweaked his left nipple with her long fingers. I'm serious. She doesn't walk around in her bathrobe. Stephen rose up on one elbow. What do you think? We have orgies while waiting for calls? She gave him a pout. You've got a fairy mascot and a female firefighter. I don't know what goes on down there. Stephen knew some men on the other shifts and other stations gave Paula a hard time. Snide comments here and there. On Valentine's Day, she came in and her locker was decorated with red condoms. After she skipped the annual fireman's ball, people like Jimmy said it was because she didn't want to bring her lesbian date. "'You don't know she's a lesbian,' Stephen said over another game of pool at the hose. "'She takes care of her dad. He was sick. Why are you worried about it?' "'I'm not worried. I'm worried about you, the little pink guy floating around when you're taking a shower. Might rub off.' "'How'd you like this pool stick up your ass?' Stephen said. Jimmy said, "'See, that's where it starts!' As if there weren't already gay firefighters in the department, Stephen knew the rumors. Billy Heller, over at Ladder 12, living with the same guy for five years, claiming they were cousins. Sam Capitalupo used to lead hose for Engine 23 before he got zapped by a fallen electrical wire. His roommate hadn't left his hospital for two days. Things like that attracted attention. Heller's tires had been slashed a couple of times. Capitalupo had come back on the job, but after a couple of accidents slippery floors, doors that opened unexpectedly and gave him black eyes, he transferred to a desk job in the safety division. Stephen thought he was doing a good job of putting up with Fairy Bob, even if it wasn't always easy. Before lights out each night, Bob asked for a thimbleful of hot cocoa made with real milk and fresh whipped cream. Captain Ingalls had Stephen fix it. Bob's breakfast every morning was fresh pineapple cut into splinter-sized portions. Stephen was responsible for that as well. Bob slept in a specially crafted, multi-storied oak birdhouse in the watch office. Stephen had to keep the windows clean with lemon water and make sure Bob's handkerchief-sized silk sheets were laundered with the mildest of soaps and sweep glitter off the birdhouse floors with a fine, narrow paintbrush. Don't forget to shake out the rugs! Bob would cheerfully remind him and give him another damned kiss like a blood-sucking mosquito. Worse than the kisses was Bob's whistling, that damn whistling, the day and night whistling. Stephen started hearing it when he was at his father's house, arguing over fantasy football rankings with his dad. While he was making love to Lisa, a girl he started seeing after Katie didn't work out. Lisa was dark and curvy, in the habit of leaving bruises on him. The bruises made him feel well used. He heard whistling on the subway, in the supermarket, when he was standing at the river's edge and gazing at the dark water. Pink tights and butterfly wings and "'disco music, and even the kisses he could live with. "'But that ceaseless, high-pitched, off-tune whistling drove him nuts. "'Still,' he told himself, "'better to say nothing. Three months he'd been with Engine 14, no problems. "'No fires bigger than his first one, where the mom got killed. "'Some gruesome car accidents. "'Heart attacks and sprained ankles and stranded cats, oh my. "'Sometimes people came on by the firehouse looking for directions or first aid.' All in all, less exciting and dangerous than Iraq, and Stephen was happy for that. Then Paula was out sick for a week. She liked the same newspaper comics that he did, and they usually bickered over who got to read them first. It was no fun to have the whole section to himself. Her temporary replacement was a sweaty man from Engine 2 with the unlikely name of Gordon Gordon. "'Why do you have two identical names?' Bob asked him at breakfast. "'Why do you have wings?' Gordon smiled and showed his teeth. Bob did a somersault in midair. To fly like a bird! Gordon's fingers tightened around his coffee cup. Eddie, our satyr, doesn't have wings. Just really sharp horns. They conducted two fire inspections that day and responded to a heart attack call. Gordon Gordon talked a lot about Eddie the satyr. Stephen had seen the half-man, half-goat from afar, but never talked to him. The goat part was weird, Gordon Gordon agreed. But Eddie played a mean hand of poker, could bench press 500 pounds, and had personally dragged three firemen out of a notorious blaze down on Pier 52. I'm just saying, Gordon Gordon added, watching Bob and his fairy friends play Simon Says in the parking lot. A mascot like Eddie's a real asset, you know? You can't say that about all of them. Around four o'clock, just as Stephen was thinking about starting dinner, two tones went off. Another car accident, but this one was bad. A flipped SUV had landed on top of a station wagon in the middle of the Crosstown Expressway. The SUV driver was pinned upside down, his face covered with blood, half his scalp hanging free. He was conscious, somehow, and screaming. No words, just screams. Several inches beneath him, the driver of the station wagon, gender, unrecognizable, body in squashed or torn pieces, was beyond anyone's help. But there was a blue plastic infant carrier in the back seat and a tiny kid, maybe only a few weeks old, still alive back there. She's crying, Bob reported as he darted in and out of the wreck. Is she hurt? Scooter asked. Bob wrung his tiny hands. Just crying. Can't you help her? She's so unhappy. We're trying. Two other engines had responded to the call. Police officers directed rubbernecking frustrated drivers caught in gridlock. A news helicopter buzzed and rattled overhead, the engine noises making Stephen's teeth itch. The day was so unseasonably warm that sweat collected under his uniform and pooled at the small of his back. The weight and thickness of his turnout coat didn't help. He could smell burning rubber, scorched metal, blood, lots of blood, gunpowder, the stench of rotting bodies, seven of them lined up neatly beside the road as flies filled their eyes and mouths. He stood there, the desert glare making his eyes hurt, his breathing tight under his uniform and vest, gun clutched so tightly in hand that his fingers ached. This was wrong, all wrong. He had left the desert behind, hadn't he? Had left behind the dead and dying, the bitter and knowing gazes of survivors, the fetid waste and broken cities. Had vowed never again would he be helpless in the grip of politics and war. Not with seven bodies on the road, a family who had offered friendly smiles the last time Stephen's squad passed this way. A family, three adults, three children, a baby with deep brown eyes and beautiful smile. "'Hey, Proby,' someone said, touching his arm. He recoiled violently, pulling back with his gun raised. But there was no gun in his hand, nothing but his bare fingers pointing at Gordon Gordon. The rumble and stench of traffic made Stephen's stomach clench in a spasm. They were standing by the side of the expressway, surrounded by fire engines and police cars, helicopters, goddamned helicopters. Overhead, an upside-down man screaming as blood pulsed out of his skull faster than paramedics could staunch it. Stephen fell to his knees, cement slamming against bone. He retched helplessly, convulsively. He was shivering under his coat, his muscles spasming like he had his fingers in an electrical socket. When the vomiting stopped, he realized a paramedic was taking his pulse and someone else was pushing a bottle of water into his hands. "'We'd better take him in, just in case,' the paramedic was telling someone. "'No,' Stephen took the water bottle but brushed the paramedic aside. "'I'm okay.' Captain Engels almost made an order, but after several minutes of arguing instead, told Stephen to take the rest of the day off. A police car dropped him off at his apartment. He shed his gear in his living room, crawled into bed with a bottle of Jack Daniels, and turned on the TV. He didn't eat dinner. He didn't answer his ringing phone. He drank, vomited again sometime around sunset, fell into a restless sleep, and stumbled to the door when some stupid bastard started banging on it. Jimmy pushed his way in, his expression grim and worried. He was still wearing his uniform. "'You're on shift,' Stephen said thickly. He could still feel the whiskey burning in his belly and brain. Wanted more, but it was all the way back in his bedroom. I'm due back in an hour. Your captain called my captain, said go check on you. You look like hell, and you stink. Go shower off, will you? Easier to obey than argue, but the soap and water felt more like chores than any kind of comfort. He pulled on sweatpants, but couldn't find the clean T-shirt. Took the whiskey with him to the kitchen where Jimmy was pulling a hot pizza from the microwave. "'Eat,' Jimmy said, pushing him into a chair. "'Not hungry,' Stephen replied, which was mostly true. "'Eat, and tell me what the hell happened out there.' Stephen lifted a wedge of pizza and watched cheese drip from the crust. "'Nothing.' "'Nothing, my ass!' Jimmy pulled out a chair, turned it backwards, and straddled it. He scrubbed the sides of his head, ruffling his short brown hair. "'You froze up? Your captain said you were out of it. Flashback? PTSD?' The cheese kept dripping. What are you, a psychiatrist? The department can make you see a real shrink, Stevie boy. He swigged more whiskey. Only if I've got a real problem. Jimmy pinned him with a stare. You got something? Stephen shifted his focus to the wall. You don't think about it? Things that happened back there? Not when I'm awake, Jimmy replied. Before leaving, Jimmy manhandled Stephen to his bed. "'dumped him on the wrinkled sheets and confiscated the Jack Daniels. "'He searched for the remote to the television, "'then gave up and turned the volume down by hand. Stephen watched from the pillows. "'He felt sore from the inside out. "'I remember all the dead,' Stephen murmured. "'The way their mouths hung open and you could see their black tongues. "'You've got to leave it behind,' Jimmy said. Stephen closed his eyes. "'He could feel Jimmy's presence in the room, "'the solidness of his sturdy body and blue uniform.' Brotherhood. Soldiers and firemen, he thought. The room was hot, and he pushed the sheet down to his bare waist. Don't shut me out, Jimmy said softly. I couldn't stand that. The floor creaked under shifting weight. A long moment expanded, contracted up again. The door creaked. Then, in the soft grey land between waking and sleeping, something gentle brushed against Stephen's mouth. Soft lips. Warm breath. A caress. He jerked awake with a jolt of fear and anger. "'God damn it!' he swore. But he was all alone in the pre-dawn light. But someone had kissed him. He was sure of it. Brief, tiny, forbidden. He wiped his lips and thought he saw the faintest hint of glitter. "'Bob!' he snarled and lurched to the open window and ripped screen. B-Shift was off duty that day. When Captain Engels called to see how he was doing, Stephen apologized for letting the accident scene get to him. He was sorry he'd become so emotional. "'Can't shut your feelings off,' Ingalls said. "'Nobody wants you to.' His father called. His father called. "'Heard you were under the weather,' he said. But Stephen denied it, and that was it. Topic closed. His father had never been comfortable with childhood illnesses or frailties. It couldn't have been easy, a widowed firefighter raising a kid alone, but it hadn't been especially sympathetic, either.' "'Stop feeling sorry for yourself,' Stephen told his reflection on the bathroom mirror. He went to work the next morning with renewed resolve. No more weakness. No more losing control. At roll call, Scooter slapped him on the back and Ingalls gave him a nod. Paula said, "'Are you okay?' And he said, "'Sure.' Bob spun around him, his butterfly wings quick with concern. "'Dearest, dearest, I was worried for you,' Bob said. Stephen dug his fingernails into his palms. "'I'm fine.' I'm so happy to hear it! Bob swirled and cartwheeled and then he started whistling, that stupid, annoying whistling, and Stephen's control vanished. Stop that, he snapped. I swear to God, keep it up, I'll rip your wings off and shove them down your throat! Bob froze in midair. Stephen! Paula said. It's all he goddamn does! Stephen said, his vision narrow and blurred on the edges. He felt unexpectedly like weeping and squashed the impulse with every bit of ruthlessness he owned. "'Day and fucking night! It's inhumane! It's cruel an unusual punishment!' Bob sank to the floor, his wings stilled. Stephen stalked off to the kitchen, where he sloshed hot coffee into a cup and over his fingers. Captain Ingalls called him into his office a few minutes later and asked what the problem was. "'Nothing, sir,' Stephen insisted. "'You bite Bob's head off for no good reason, and that's nothing?' "'The whistling's got to stop,' Stephen said. "'I know you hate it, too. Everyone does.' "'Engle shook his head. "'Bob whistles. Paula bites her nails. "'Scooter stinks up the bathroom, and you snore. "'I myself am exempt from irritating habits, "'but the rest of you? Not perfect. Never will be. "'You need to apologize.' Stephen stared at a spot beyond Engle's shoulder and kept silent. "'Not a choice, Proby. Don't get me wrong. "'You're a good man. Valuable.' About a thousand times bigger than Bob, physically speaking. But today, you are the smaller man. Don't make things worse. Maybe I should transfer to another station, sir. Engels reached for his coffee cup. If it comes down to that, maybe so. The shift passed slowly, with no calls or inspections to break up the long hours. The autumn sun was a stark yellow disk in the cloudy sky. Stephen talked to no one, unless he absolutely had to. Scooter and Paula spent most of the day trying to persuade Bob to come out of his birdhouse. He didn't mean it, Stephen heard Paula say. He's upset about something else, Scooter added. Bob didn't respond. A few hours after a silent, tense lunch, three tones went off. A long, somber list of companies followed. Engine 8, Engine 25, Engine 5, Ladder 3, Rescue 9, Rescue 156, 429 Pierre Street, Not Engine 14, though. Stephen felt an irrational anger that they weren't being called out to what sounded like a kick-ass fire, a real scorcher. Twenty minutes later, the tones sounded again. Engine 47, Engine 14, Ladder 2, Rescue 10, the dispatcher said. Support units already on scene, 429 Pierre Street. Stephen jumped up to his seat, saw Paula take her place, felt the movement of the engine as Scooter shifted into gear. They rolled out of the station house twenty seconds after the tone. Bob was with them, perched in Captain Ingalls' helmet. His jaunty cap was askew. He wore bright new purple boots with bells on the tips. Fairies, Stephen thought bitterly, and turned his shoulder. They raced through the city streets to Pierre Street, where smoke rose from the roof of a five-story brick warehouse. Stephen's heart clenched the minute he saw the place. Only a few windows to vent poisonous fumes and broiling heat. Only five exits in and out, including a loading dock by a set of rusty train tracks. Old building, shuttered and abandoned for years. Who knew what kind of toxic or flammable waste might be in there? Drug addicts or homeless schizophrenics might be living inside, might have started the fire. Or a pyromaniac, or arsonists. Collecting insurance on an old warehouse was often a more valuable proposition than trying to clean it up and rent it. Paula, her face pale, shouted, "'This one's going to be bad!' The district chief was already on the scene, directing crews and equipment. "'Reports of people inside,' he said, worrying the edges of his mustache with one hand. "'Fuckers spread out, hiding. Up on the fifth floor, some on four and three. Try to keep it off, too!' After a brief conference, Ingalls directed Paula and Stephen to take a line up the northwest stairwell to the second floor to support a crew from Engine 4. They lugged their hose over a hundred yards of jagged asphalt and plunged into the gray interior. Smoke rolled thickly through the air, limited visibility. No sign of flames, but the air was charged with heat. The warehouse was an oven that would grow hotter the longer the flames went unchecked. Three hundred degree air at waist level, a thousand or more degrees at the high ceilings. Crematorium heat. They dragged the hose up to the second floor and into a storeroom with solid brick walls. Tattered sleeping bags and soiled pillows softened Stephen's footsteps. From somewhere above, a loud whoosh of inferno. "'Wet rolled into his eyes, and he couldn't raise a gloved hand "'under his confining mask to clear his vision. "'Keep going!' Paula ordered, leading him in pursuit of Engine 4's hose. "'The radio crackled with reports from other crews, "'flames for sure up on the third floor, northeast. "'Steel fire doors closed off on the fourth floor. the sprinkler system wasn't working. zero visibility in some areas. "'Engine 15 was trying to punch holes in the roof for ventilation, "'a body in the southwest stairwell.' After some initial confusion, someone reported that it had probably been there for a while. The smoke grew thicker, darker, fueled by burning kerosene or tar, maybe. Stephen caught a glimpse of bright red that was quickly obscured. Ten feet away? Maybe twenty? Hard to tell. Like stumbling around in gray velvet, no stars or streetlights for guidance. They almost collided with two men from Engine 4, one of them, Jimmy Linden. "'This one's a bitch!' Jimmy yelled through his mask. The fire leapt above their heads, a long tongue of bright, hot light. Paula trained the hose she and Stephen was carrying toward it and opened the, the nozzle. The pressurized hose bucked and jerked in Stephen's grip. Together with Jimmy and his partner, they advanced several feet, but then the rolling flames shifted across the wooden rafters and grew brighter. Oxygen from somewhere above was feeding it, boosting it. "'Back off!' Paula ordered. The mask muffled her words, and the roar of fire nearly drowned them out completely. "'We're going to need more help!' Jimmy's partner yelled, "'We can handle it!' "'Not without more help!' Paula shouted back. Requests for aid were already filling the radio. Stephen could imagine dispatch sending out more engines, more ladders. Hardliners lived for these kinds of fires, the terrifying, exhilarating ones, the ones that made legends. At that moment, Stephen didn't care so much for legends. He wanted out, out as quickly as possible, out to fresh, cool air and as much water as he could drink.' Above them, the flames started arcing down like hungry, grasping fingers. "'Let's go!' Jimmy's partner yelled, and the four of them retreated across the storeroom. One moment, Stephen's world was dark gray and darker gray. In the next, black smoke swept down like an ocean of ink and cut off all visibility. He couldn't see his own feet, couldn't see the edges of his mask. The light on his helmet illuminated nothing. His only link to Paula was the hose, which jerked out of his grasp and slipped away altogether." he flailed his hands bent over but couldn't find it paula he shouted jimmy no answer none that he could hear at least a freight train of noise the sound of the inferno rushed down on him Stephen spun in the darkness trying to remember how many paces they'd come told himself panic would kill him he had at least ten minutes of oxygen left plenty of time to find a way out for jimmy to find him for paula to grab his hand but he was alone frantically alone, and the heat beating into his brain made it impossible to stay calm. He keyed the radio, trying not to sound, shit scared. Command, this is Goodwin. I'm on the second floor. Can't see a thing. Can't see anyone. No answer. And they heard him. Stephen's chest burned with fear and smoke. Command, do you hear me? I'm lost. Easy, kid, a voice responded. Gruff, an old-timer, maybe the battalion chief himself. We'll find you. Just stay low and still. Got it? Let your alarm lead us to you. His gear included a motion sensor alarm, geared to go off if he stopped moving for thirty continuous seconds. A minute passed. He couldn't hear the alarm at all, just that dull, rushing whoosh of fire-eating wood and anything else in its way. His throat closed up from dryness or danger, both. His hands shook uncontrollably. He was on the floor, but couldn't remember lying down. Was gasping for air, but couldn't find enough of it to breathe. Then a rainbow glow, the flutter of wings. "'Dearest!' someone said, high and frantic." "'Tinker Bob burrowed under the edges of Stephen's mask "'and flitted in front of his eyes. "'Bob,' he wheezed. "'You have to crawl,' Bob said. "'Crawl, crawl. I'll tell you where.' "'Can't,' he said. "'Bob kissed his nose, his cheeks, little pricks of cool lips. "'You have to, dearest. Straight on for fifty feet. "'I'm right here with you. Fairies always know how to find the sun.' "'He tried rolling to his knees, "'ordered his arms and legs to respond, to obey his will.' but his brain and muscles had disconnected. He could do nothing but gasp in hot air and tremble, his whole body shutting down. Above him, the red flames were turning yellow and orange, like the desert sky stretching endlessly over a barren landscape. he delivered death there, or been the cause of it, seven corpses black and rotting. Oh, dearest, Bob said, how can I help? Whistle, Stephen coughed out. A different alarm was sounding now, his oxygen running out. If he kept the mask on, he would suffocate on his own carbon dioxide. If he whipped it off, he'd burn his lungs and choke on the toxic smoke. Already he could taste it, the poisonous fumes shutting down his voice and throat. Whistle, so I'm not alone, Bob. Gloved hands gripped his boots just as the blackness consumed him. Stephen didn't die in the warehouse fire, but five other firefighters did, as did Bob. Jimmy and Stephen's father broke the news to him while he was in the hospital. His father said, Two men from Engine 3, three from Rescue 2, got disoriented, trapped, ran out of air. Bob was the only mascot we lost. He went looking for you, but the fire got to him first. He found me, Stephen insisted, past an aching, seared throat. His whole body hurt from dehydration and heat exhaustion. A headache was squeezing his brain, and the bright fluorescent lights of the hospital room didn't help. He talked to me. He was coming down from the fourth floor, Jimmy said, never got out of the stairwell. He whistled, attracted help. That was your motion alarm, Stephen, Jimmy said. Three days later, the Massasoit Fire Department gave the fallen firefighters a splendid memorial parade. The ranks were joined by firefighters and supernatural companions from several other cities, and even a unit that drove down from Canada. The mile-long procession made its way down Broad Avenue in long columns of black coats and black boots, with bagpipe music cutting through the autumn chill. Vintage fire-wagons carried the coffins. Four white unicorns drew bobs, which lay atop a bed of roses and daffodils. Thumb-sized fairies sat on the roses and wept behind tiny black veils. Stephen wasn't well enough to march, but he did so anyway, two hours in the bitter cold, faltering only when they reached the cemetery. Jimmy got him to a low stone wall and sat beside him while the reverend and an elf delivered eulogies. I don't know if I can do this job, Stephen whispered. Jimmy patted his shoulder but said nothing. Dead leaves stirred in the breeze brushing against Stephen's shoes. He said, I was mad at him for coming to my apartment, for kissing me while I was asleep. Bad enough I had to put up with him at work, but in my own place, never. Jimmy was rock still beside him. "'We're like brothers,' he finally said, strangled. "'Nothing else, I swear it.' Stephen kicked at the dead leaves and said, "'I know.' "'The department gave him time off to recuperate, "'to heal physically and meet with the grief counselor. "'Every day he debated his options, firemen or something else. "'But there was little else he could see himself doing. "'An army recruiter got hold of his telephone number "'and offered him a bonus to re-enlist. "'The fire department would hold his job "'while he did another tour in the desert.' That's what you want? his father asked. That's what I'm good at, Stephen said, and they were both silent while the football championships played out on television. He wasn't sure at the end which team had won and which had lost. One morning, Paula called him. She said, Meet me at Bob's grave. Discomfort flared in his chest. I can't. Please, she said. There's a reason. He drove out toward the cemetery, turned around twice, but finally made it. Dark gray clouds swirled across the sky. Paula was already there, putting a wreath of evergreen leaves on Bob's tiny grave. Her long black coat was buttoned to the neck, and her cheeks were wet. Stephen kept his distance out of respect, but she waved him forward. "'I meant to call you before today,' she said. "'See how you're doing.' But then I remembered how I felt when two men from my company had died while I was the one who lived. Anytime anyone asked me how I was doing, I just wanted to scream. "'Are you going to tell me it'll get better some day?' No, Paula said. Maybe it will, and maybe it won't. He heard a faint rustle of wings. The golden phoenix, the supreme fire chief, was sitting like a statue amid the tombstones and trees. She seemed diminished, shrunken somehow, wrapped in feathers of gray grief. Stephen flinched under her gaze and took a step backwards, but Paula's hand on his shoulder steadied him. It's okay, Paula said. She just wants to talk. Later, Jimmy and his father will ask him what the phoenix told him. Stephen can't say for sure. He remembers climbing onto the bird's back and holding tight as she lifts into the sky, her wide wings gliding on wind and current, her beak turned toward the sun. He remembers soaring through clouds of twinkling rainbow lights and hearing some whistling, some joyous, off-key whistling. "'Fairies live forever,' he thinks, she said. "'They live by their own rules and passions, not yours. Let him go.' He also thinks she told him not to give up on his very important job." but maybe that's something he told himself. He returned to Engine 14 two weeks later. Some changes had already been made. Paula had asked for and received a transfer over to Engine 25, closer to her home and sick father. Stephen had taken her to dinner twice since that day in the cemetery and hoped to take her some more. His therapist was encouraging him. The firehouse had also received a new mascot. Seamus O'Finn O'Flaherty was a three-foot-tall leprechaun who wore a green velvet costume. He lived in a green van in the parking lot along with Mrs. O'Flynn O'Flaherty and their six small children and a tiny dog. Seamus liked to cook and cheerfully took on responsibility for dinner. Unfortunately, Captain Ingalls said, most of his recipes were some variation on corned beef and cabbage. I like corned beef, sir, Stephen said. Not every night you won't. Apollo's replacement was a firefighter with five years in the department who'd been riding a desk over in the safety division. "'Sam Cappadalupo,' he said, offering his hand. Cappadalupo was a handsome man with wide shoulders and a firm handshake. But something in his eyes was wary, cautious, as if Stephen might be dangerous. It took a moment for Stephen to remember the rumors about Cappadalupo. The insinuations and gossip. He thought of Jimmy over at Engine 129, of Bob in his coffin, of wars fought in deserts, and wars fought in the heart. "'Sorry about your mascot,' Cappadalupo added." Stephen thought he heard whistling, distant, but cheerful. Best fairy I ever worked with, Stephen said. Come on, let's get some coffee. I hear Seamus bruise a green.
0: Feedback for Podcastle episode number 65, Cat Rambo's Foam on the Water, about a not-so-little mermaid and the man she fell in love with. One thing Ann Lecky's intro did was inspire people to go back to the Hans Christian Andersen version. She has said, I've always had a thing for fairy tales and I do like being able to pick out the original story. I remember something about The Little Mermaid being able to earn a soul after death, which I found very touching, but it's probably a good thing that it was left out because it would have ruined the ending of this story. I haven't read Hans Christian Andersen's stories in a long time, and I plan on going back and reading them. This is not without trepidation, mind you, Anne's not the only one who has problems with these stories. I had to kill my shadow last time. She was the shadow, not me. Now we have such fascinating posters in our forums. Geely said, This was a bit of a mixed bag. The writing was gorgeous and Ivory and the narrator were fascinating, but the other guy and the mermaid seemed like throwaway props. I'd like to see the four of them together a bit longer to describe the relationship that they have. Corydon said, I like Cat Rambo's writing and the story showcased it well. The connection between the mermaid's self-mutilation and the self-mutilations of modern life, like tattoos, piercing, surgery, is a clever one. But I feel like the practice of updating fairy tales to reflect an older, unsanitized version has become such a cliché in fantasy, the exposition here was particularly clumsy. Believing that aside, I just don't know that the world needs another Little Mermaid plus Kinky Sex, or Red Riding Hood plus Kinky Sex, or Snow White plus Kinky Sex, or whatever. I like Kinky Sex as much as the next person, but the version of seeing it added to familiar childhood stories has long passed me by. Madness42192 said, I thought that the BDSM theme running through it was unusual, something taboo and kinky, and like all things taboo and kinky, it made you want to learn more. I never read The Little Mermaid before, but after hearing this, I read it and found it much more intriguing than the Disney version. Hey, Madness, clearly you need to go back and watch that wedding scene again. Or, well, maybe not. Anyway, come on over to our forums at forums.escapeartist.net and join in on the discussion. Just... Maybe not mention kinky sex in your first post, but mods get kind of trigger-happy when it comes to spam bots.
1: Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Seneca said, Fire is the test of gold, adversity of strong men.